Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Christina Baker-Klein. In her newest novel, A Piece of the World, Christina paints a vivid portrait of the subject of the famous Andrew Wyeth painting, Christina's World. The real Christina Olsen suffered from polio and was a lifelong resident of Cushing, Maine, where she met Wyeth. Christina Baker-Klein, also a Maine resident, recreates Christina Olsen as a historically accurate and compelling character. So on the phone right now, we have Christina Baker-Klein, author of A Piece of the World. And Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, So Orphan Train, obviously, huge success. Um, How do you follow that up? How did the um, the idea for this new novel come about? Well, you know, it actually wasn't scary following up Orphan Train. I think people think it might be because it took off and had a life of its own and I had this wonderful journey with it. Um, but the, my new novel is both similar in some f- fundamental ways and also quite a departure. So I entered a whole new universe when I started it and I think that was useful maybe as a writer because I, um, I, didn't, I didn't have the touchstones that I'd had with, with Orphan Train. The way it's similar is that when I wrote Orphan Train, I got immersed, I became immersed in early 20th century rural life in America and um, progressing through the 20s and then the Depression and then World War II. And in both um, Orphan Train and A Piece of the World, that's the landscape of the story that takes place in the past. So. I knew after I wrote Orphan Train that I had learned all this stuff and I was really interested in this period and in what it was like for people living at the edges of society um, in the early 20th century. Uh, so I, I had an idea that I wanted to sort of stay in that time period, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. When I was a child, I, um, we moved to Maine when I was fairly young, and we lived about an hour and a half from the real house that is in the painting of Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth. And I had that poster on my wall, my name is Christina, my mother and grandmother are also named Christina, and in fact, my grandmother, Christina, grew up in a very similar kind of setting. She was lived in a, a collaborative farmhouse with no modern amenities within a decade of Christina Olsen, she was born. So I always had this kind of association with that woman in the painting in my mind. Um, and, you know, the artist Cindy Sherman, who does these giant photographs, beautiful photographs with herself as a subject, did one where she sort of envisioned what it would look like if Christina turned her head. And I always thought that was interesting. Like, what would you see if the woman in that painting, in the pink dress, in the field, turned her head and looked at the viewer? So um, I was chatting with a friend about another idea that she had for a book about Gauguin. And she just said out of the blue, you know, that painting Christina's World reminds me of you for some reason. And that minute I knew that was my subject. 
was crazy. I just was like, okay, that's my story. <laughs> and it was almost like it had been sitting there waiting to be unearthed. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find, found really interesting in reading the book is that, you know, looking at the painting, I always assumed that she was a young girl and that assume, you know, presumably Andrew Wyeth, the painter, was older. But in fact, you find out that it's not the case. Is that a common misconception that you came across? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's sort of at the heart of what the book is about. Um, she was in her 50s when that painting was done, and um, Andrew Wyeth was decades younger, and she was didn't really look like the woman who he portrays. The, the torso of that woman is sort of taken from his wife, who was very young. And But at the same time, part of what the novel is about is that Christina Olsen, the real-life person, um, saw herself as a girl, and he brought out in her a kind of um, uh, youthfulness that she had long before given up. And so, to me, the painting is sort of a celebration of what she feels like inside uh, more than what she looked like in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's um, there's one point where he paints, he tries to paint her the first time, she's very solemn, and she sees it, and she goes, that, that's not how I see myself, I think of myself as a girl. Yeah, exactly, and, you know, m- much of this novel, by the way, is based on fact, and the record of what she said, and what happened, because there are a number of people who've written about her, pretty much, you know, relatives, either self-published or small presses, and but also uh, this wonderful biography by Andrew, Andrew Mer- for uh, by Richard Merriman of Andrew Wyeth, um, and so I had this sort of source material. But one of the things that I didn't have was I made up that response she had to that earlier painting, which was somber and dark and um, kind of grim. Uh, but it felt like it made sense to me, and it was a really useful way of showing Wyeth's. Um, sort of showing her as she really was and then taking her as a springboard for this painting, Christina's World. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, your research process going into this? Yeah, I mean, I did a ton of research and I know that's not the way a lot of novelists work. Um, I felt very, re- I felt responsible for being as factually accurate as possible because there are people in my novel who are still alive. I mean, these are real people, Um, which, by the way, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do again because it was really (laughs) hard (laughs) to write about real people, especially because um, though I tried to tell a factually accurate story, it's a a first-person narrative from her perspective. She is no longer alive, but, um, but... as I say, um, Andrew Wyatt's widow is alive, and his children, and there are many members of the Christina Olsen family who are still alive. So, um, of course, you know, in generations. But um, I know that a lot of people care a lot about the principles in this story, meaning the Wyatt Foundation and people involved in the Wyatt family um, were worried that I was going to be telling a story that might not only not be true, but also be very negative about them. So I felt a great responsibility. The truth is, um, Betsy Wyeth, who is Andrew Wyeth's widow, is still is still living, but her character was very um, 
positive, um, and I didn't make any of that up. She was um, she was a great advocate and friend of and to Christina Olson, and she also was an amazing force in Andrew Wyeth's career. So she was sort of a pleasure to describe. But I did a ton of research. I re I read many books. I went to the house, um, the Wyeth house a number of times, the, the Christine Olsen house, which is now part of the museum in Maine, the Farnsworth, that has a whole Wyeth house, actually. It's an old church that was converted into his mu uh, museum of the Wyeth family. Um, and then I went to the Brandywine Museum in Pennsylvania. I interviewed people. I talked to tour guides uh, at the house. I talked to curators. I, you know, interviewed family members. So I did a lot of work on it uh, to get it, to get the facts right. So you did get a chance to actually talk to um, some of the Olsons and some of the Wyeths? Yeah, I talked to um, David Rockwell, who was Betsy Wyeth's nephew, uh, and Andy's nephew too, and of course, and um, Jean Olson, who's um, uh, niece, who wrote a biography of Christina Olson, which was really helpful, um, which I loved, and it was, it's now out of print. I wish they would bring it back in print, because it's terrific, but, um, and then I, as I say, I defended some tour guides, and they took me to meet people, including friends of um, the Olson family and the Wyeths, so I, I kind of, uh, I kind of covered my bases in terms of doing that. At the same time, that the book is um, a first-person narrative, so it's Christina's story, and um, you know, I had to use a lot of imagination to make that work. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Were there, um, were there any facts that you had to alter or maybe take out or invent for the sake of this fictional narrative, or did you try to keep it grounded as much as possible in the facts? Well, there was there are a number of stories in the book that are almost hard to believe and were difficult for me as a novelist to make um, believable because I would not have chosen um, to have my character act the way she acted, but she did in real life. So it was an interesting challenge to me to create motivations for behaviors that I wouldn't have given to my character. For example, when she, when Christine Olsen, the real person, was a young girl, her father, who was quite a strong personality himself, um, took her to a doctor in Rockland, which at that point with a horse and buggy in the middle of winter was a big journey and a real pain in the neck to undertake and you know they made an appointment with a doctor Christina was young and she refused to go and he didn't make her go and they drove back to Cushing and she never went to another doctor really until she was an adult and also had a bad experience but um that was hard for me to wrap my head around because she was a little girl. He was a strong-willed adult, and the fact that they got all the way to Rockland and he never he allowed her to dictate, you know, not doing this and drove home was an odd was an odd thing. But to your question about whether I invented characters, um, there's a story, a real story about Christina. Um, never speaking to her best friend after her friend provokes her, um, and I describe this at length in the novel, um, but I had to then create motivations for, for Christina that would have been sort of long-standing. In other words, her best friend, in my rendering, is kind of manipulative and, um, and, and a little disdainful and mean to Christina. I 
don't know if that woman was like that in real life. And so I changed her name. There, there are a lot of names in the novel that are, are the real names of people. But in the case of this character, I felt I, it, would, it would have been um, irresponsible of me to name her give her her real name. So I gave her the name Gertrude Gibbons. But, you know, think about this. Christina Olsen lived in this teeny tiny town in on the coast of Maine, and she is her best friend, who's been loyal to her her whole life, does this one thing, and she never speaks to her again for the rest of her life. That's pretty hard to pull off in a small town. Yeah. You know? So And it says something, of course, about her character about who she was and what she was like and and it's not necessarily a good thing so um i really tried to get deep into what christina felt and what her motivations were because on the surface when you see when you read these stories that are that are true about her you you know she can come across as kind of a tough broad Mm, absolutely and um yeah i just i just love how you know, you were able to take this real-life person and sort of weave this soul into her as a character. Yeah, I mean, I just had to go very deep into what it would have felt like to have this degenerative muscular disease that nobody could diagnose. There was no cure. She was, she just got worse. Um, she was very proud. She refused to use a wheelchair, for example, and um, there was sort of nothing anyone could do about it. She had burn marks all up and down her arms from, you know. Yeah, every, every time she family. fell in the book, I was like, oh, no. I know. Ugh. It was terrible, and truthfully, it was a somewhat dire situation, that household. You know, they had no amenities, and Christina was expected to do all the cooking and washing and cleaning, and she really wasn't capable of it, especially toward the, you know, toward the end. This all sounds very depressing. I want to stress that (laughs) I don't think the novel is depressing. I mean, I think that you get a sense of what this woman's life was like at the same time that she herself, I think, felt perfectly, you know, sort of fine living this life. And furthermore, Wyeth came into the book and and into her life and into the story, and it was kind of like in The Wizard of Oz where everything's black and white and then it turns into technicolor. I think he transformed her and transformed that story. Mm, Absolutely. And it ends on a very um, hopeful, uplifting note. Yeah, I mean, that ending was super hard to pull off. I, I think it was accurate. I mean, I think that she felt in the painting that she was finally not only seen, but immortalized. I mean, that her life, her quiet, anonymous life on the coast of Maine was given gravitas and weight and meaning, and that Wyeth saw her um, and saw her beauty in a way that no one ever had before, and it was transformative for her. Mm. So overall, what do you want the reader to take away from this, whether it's about Christina, about Andrew Wyeth, about the painting, about human nature itself, um, that they might not have known going in? That there are several things. One is uh, about the indomitability of the human spirit, and that um, even the quietest of lives um, have a reservoir of experience and feeling that you might not even consider when you see this sort of, I, like a homeless person, for example, on the street. That 
you know, this story could have easily been told about any life with this laser focus on one solitary person, but also that um, what I had to access as I created this character was a kind of, uh, in some ways this book is a philosophical meditation on what it means to be human. I mean, I don't mean to be grandiose, but I, it's just such a different book than Orphan Train in that way, in that I, um, in Orphan Train, this, the narrative is literally um, rushed along by the train. You know, we move from one place to the next with this character, and she has different experiences and undergoes uh, different kinds of trials and journeys. In a piece of the world, Christina lives her entire life in the same house, and she almost never, virtually never leaves. People come to the door, and she doesn't really go out. So, um, so I, I had to dig deep and tell a very internal story, which I hope I pulled off, and I think um, that, I think, at least from the feedback so far, it's compelling and actually is an adventure story in a whole different kind of way, but you're very much inside this world and inside her head, and, um, and so this laser, as I said, focus, this deep um, focus on this one person and her character, um, I think, I hope, um, yields insights, at least it did for me, about, um, about human nature. Absolutely. Like you said, to steal your word, um, this laser focus on quite literally a small piece of the world. Yeah, exactly. And there's a line at the end where she's thinking, she says, you know, this idea of uh, the part standing in for the whole that she talks about earlier in the, in the story um, is exactly what her life is. That this, this may only be a small piece of the world, but it is the entire world to me. And she says something like that. And that's, that, was, that was sort of a guiding principle for the whole book. Absolutely. Uh, so, Christine, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, since this podcast is primarily for teachers, students, professors... Uh, we ask all of our guests on here, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's a great question. I've been lucky to have some incredible teachers, but um, I will I will just mention one because I think this is a good example of how teachers can have an impact far beyond the actual small gestures that they make. Um, in other words, the smallest of gestures can change someone's life. So when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher, Mrs. Carey, who um, gave us a creative writing assignment, maybe my first creative writing assignment. I'd always doodled stories and written things, but not really so much for class. Anyway, she we handed them in on a Friday. It was just like a page, probably. And on Monday, she watched we had rows back then in my elementary school, fifth grade, um, and she walked up and down the rows putting the pa- papers down and probably chatting with each person. When she got to me, she put the paper down and said, um, Christina, I want to tell you that I truly enjoyed your story, and in fact, I liked it so much that I read it out loud to my husband, and he liked it too. That was all she said, but I swear to you that's the moment when I decided to become a writer because I was overcome, first of all, that my teacher had a life outside of school, which <laughs> shocking to me, um, that she had a husband, who knew, um, and that her, she read my words out loud to her husband, and he liked it too. I mean, this, this was not gushing. This was just, you know, a simple statement, sort of a throwaway statement that she made, but it 
was transformative for me, and it made me think that if she liked it so much that she would share it, then maybe um, I, you know, I could keep doing this. So, um, so I would just say that teachers don't realize often what the impact that they can have on a student in the simplest of ways. And in my own teaching, I've always remembered that story. Um, and those very small moments um, are, are significant, can be very significant. Fantastic. Well, I'm very happy that she did say that to you, because here we are today. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it's great. And, uh, and thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Best of luck with everything. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.